I should like to call your attention this evening to the message of that great 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, most of which we read together just now in the reading. This chapter in which are recorded the giving of the, is recorded the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments themselves. I call your attention to this uh, as a part of a, a process we've been considering on a number of Sunday nights, the message of the Bible for today, the message of the Bible for us in our present position and predicament. And we are doing so because it is of the very essence of the Christian message to say that here and here alone have we the message of God for men. We are living in a world which is full of troubles and of problems and of trials. We are aware that all sorts and kinds of expedients are being proposed and are being tried. And yet our troubles persist. And the question confronting all thoughtful people in the world therefore tonight is, what is wrong? What is the matter? And how can it be put right? Well now, we, our case is that uh, the Bible has the only adequate and true answer to these questions. And the answer can be put quite simply. Things are as they are because man refuses to listen to God. That's the cause of the trouble. It always has been. And as long as it continues, it will lead ever to the same conditions and the same results. Man is always optimistic. Man in sin is always confident that somehow or another a day will come when he'll get over his troubles and problems. He took up with great avidity nearly a hundred years ago the so-called theory of evolution because here at last was a theory which was virtually telling men that uh, in spite of him and all his follies and all his errors and mistakes, the process was taking place inevitably. Whether men liked it or not or willed it or not, he was evolving and advancing and perfection was merely a question of time. But we are not quite as confident today as they were a hundred years ago. Something's gone wrong with the program somewhere. The 20th century should have been so much better than the 19th if that theory is true. But it's very difficult to prove that if you were put to it. We've had all this terrible catastrophe in this 20th century. And men and women are shaken. And they're not so confident, I say, about this inevitability of progress and of development. Well, the Bible, I say, has been saying from the very beginning that the trouble lies in this one thing. Man in alienation from God. Man's refusal to listen to God. Now, we've been tracing that. You see, it began way back at the very beginning. Man's always ready to blame his circumstances. He says, if only I had a chance. If only my environment could be put right. If only I really were given an opportunity to show what is in me. He's always confident that given those opportunities, he really would show what he can do. Well, the answer is that he's had all that. He was made perfect. 
he was put in paradise. And it was in paradise that men sinned. The environment was absolutely perfect. Nothing could be added to it. It was there he fell. And he fell because he raised himself up against God and rebelled against him. That's the whole origin, and there it is historically. Well, then we've been following the story on. In spite of men having done that, God didn't put an end to life in this world. He, as it were, gave men another opportunity, thrust him out of the garden, of course, and punished him for his sin and arrogance and rebellion, but nevertheless gave him a gracious promise. But again, men paid no attention. And we arrived in the terrible state of affairs that obtained before the flood, and God again manifested his wrath against it. He punished it. He told men exactly what he was doing. There again, I say, he manifested himself and his glory. And again, men was given another opportunity. But you remember we've seen that but led to the folly and the madness and the arrogance of the Tower of Babel. Men still trying to preserve an independence of God and still confident that he could make a perfect world, this city of men. And do you remember what happened? God again came down and punished it and destroyed and frustrated men's schemes and plans and darling ideas. Again, there was confusion. But God has not only behaved in that way, we came last Sunday night and saw this, that God, in his loving kindness towards mankind, not only puts it in that form, he puts it in a positive form. For we found that God chose and called a man whose name was Abram, who lived in a pagan land surrounded by paganism. God called that man and called him out. And he told him that if he but listened to him, he would bless him. He'd make a great name for him. He would establish his seed, and out of his seed, he would send a blessing to the whole world of men. And we saw that Abram, who, was, who became known as the friend of God, the greatest gentleman perhaps of all history, we have seen that he was the man that he was because of his Faithfulness to God, his obedience to God, his readiness to listen to God. He, we are told, did not set out to build an earthly city. He had got his eye on a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He went out not knowing whither he went, but God had called him, so he listened. He dwelt with his children in tents and tabernacles, because he realized that here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And he was blessed and lived a noble and a triumphant life. Read his story for yourselves. Well, there in this man Abram, God forms a new nation. Hebrews, the Jews, the children of Israel. And through this nation, he's going to reveal himself still more to the world. He's got a great purpose that he's going to bring to pass through this nation. You remember the story, don't you? Abram begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob had those twelve sons, the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel, and they had their large families. But owing to a famine, they had to go down to Egypt, where there was a plentiful supply of corn. 
But then after being there for some time, you remember, they began to be maltreated. They were virtually nothing but slaves, though they were God's chosen people. And they were having a very hard time with cruel taskmasters, whipping them and forcing them to make bricks without straw, and uh, in every way that they could, maltreating them. And the story undoubtedly would have ended in their extinction, were it not that God again intervened and came down, and by a series of amazing and miraculous events and incidents, he brought them out of the captivity of Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh and his hosts. He enabled the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea on dry land, as it were. He led them through the wilderness. And eventually brought them into the land of Canaan. But, and this is the thing that we are concerned about tonight, God having brought them out and having delivered them from the bondage and the thraldom and the cruelty of Egypt, caused them, as it were, to pause on their journey. And there he spoke to them in the way which is described in chapters 19 and 20 of this book of Exodus and which is elaborated in the following and subsequent chapters. Now what's the meaning of this? Well, the meaning of this is this. God, having done all this for this people, now addresses them in a very direct manner. And what he says is this. He says, you are my people. But though you are my people, that's not the end of the story. Though you are my people, you are only going to enjoy a life of blessing on condition that you live as I would have you live. God confronted these people with two possibilities, two alternatives. It can either be a life of blessing or else it must be cursing. Man in this life and in this world is either going to live under the mighty hand of God in blessing and in peace and joy and happiness or else he's going to live a wretched and a miserable existence. Things are going to go wrong with him. There will be a kind of curse upon him. And in spite of the fact that he will persist in thinking that all is going to be well, as I say, things will ever go wrong with him. It's either blessing or cursing. And God repeatedly said that to the children of Israel. But here, on this occasion, he stated it in a particularly clear and systematic manner. God had been saying it, as I reminded you, from the very creation of men and the creation of the world. But here, at last... He puts it, if you like, in the form of a code. He'd been speaking it in words, he'd been speaking it in action and in history, but men didn't seem to grasp it. So God now puts it as a system, if you like, of rules and regulations, so that the various child can see it quite clearly. There's no ambiguity, it's not some abstruse philosophy. God just said this, that, that, and that, ten points, and there they are. You can put them on the wall, if you like, and you can see exactly what they are. Now, said God to these people, those are the conditions on which I will bless you. But if you don't adhere to them, I will not bless you. And though you are my people, and though you are the nation that I have made out of this one man, Abram, Nothing but cursing will attend you and your life will be one of constant misery and unhappiness. 
Now, I'm calling your attention to this again for just this reason. There is no question at all but that the world tonight is as it is because we ignore what God said here to the children of Israel. That's the whole explanation of the whole trouble. Go through the story of the children of Israel in this Old Testament. It's an amazing record. The very people of God. And yet look at their checkered history. Look at the depths to which they sank. Look at the heights to which they rose. Look at their misery and wretchedness and their bondage and captivity. Look at, the other, look at them on the other hand when they conquer all their enemies and are enjoying a great abundance and a wonderful prosperity. What, what determines it? It's always this. Whenever they were right with God, he blessed them and their life was noble and wonderful. But when they rebel and refuse to keep God's law and turn after other gods as they persistently did, everything invariably went wrong with them. Well, very well. What is there then that is more important for us than to consider the message of this great incident? The giving of the law to the children of Israel, the promulgation of the Ten Commandments, God giving his laws, his rules and regulations for life, how life is to be lived if men would be blessed and if he would truly prosper. This evening I want to take a general view of these Ten Commandments. I'm picking out these great incidents in the Scripture. There are certain events in the Old Testament that stand out preeminently. We've been looking at them already, you see. I've already reminded you of them. Now here is this noble incident, this mighty incident. And I'm simply going to look at it in general. We could spend weeks on it. I'm not proposing to do so. I'm picking out these great speeches of God, if you like. These great occasions when God came down and spoke to the people, all of them leading up to the final word which he spoke in his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Very well, what has he said here? What's the message? Very fortunately for us, our Lord himself has expounded this message. One afternoon, uh, certain clever people came to our Lord and they said, we've got a question to put you. And our Lord said, well, what's your question? And they said, tell us, which in your opinion is the first, the chiefest, the greatest commandment of all? And our Lord answered them and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first and the chiefest commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now there in that one statement you have this perfect summary of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be divided up perfectly in that way into two sections. We generally refer to them, don't we, as the two tables of the law. The first table has reference to our attitude towards and our relationship to God. The second has reference to our attitude towards and our relationship towards our fellow men and women. 
The first table, second table. And you can divide your Ten Commandments quite easily in that way. Well, very well. Let's follow our Lord's own exposition. And by doing so, we shall discover the principles which God was concerned to inculcate and to put into the minds of the children of Israel and through them to us and the whole of humanity. What are the lessons? Well, let me summarize them. The first is this. The supreme thing in life is to be in a right relationship to God. There's no question about that. Take the order of these commandments, the Ten Commandments. What do you find? Well, I've just been telling you, just been reminding you. You've got the two divisions, but you notice one of them comes before the other. And the first division is the one in which we are reminded of our relationship to God. In other words, you see, we come and we ask, well, now, what am I to do in order to have a happy and a contented life? What am I to do in order that uh, I may avoid my personal problems? What's the whole world got to do tonight in order that it may deliver itself from all its troubles and its trials and its wars and all its calamities? What have we got to do? And you notice that the answer comes back and talks to us about God. I am the Lord thy God. That's how it starts. It doesn't start with our level. It doesn't start by saying, well now then let's, let's have a look at your problems. Let's take them one by one and let's see what can be done about them. Not at all. For the moment it turns its back upon all our problems and holds us face to face with God. God first, man second. And the order is absolutely vital. If I were asked to give an opinion as to what I would call or regard as the most fatal blunder in human thinking tonight, I would say without any hesitation that it's just the failure to remember this order. Here is the crucial, fatal error of men that he will persist in thinking without starting with God. Now, I think you'll agree, in other words, that the modern world proves the case of the Bible to the very hilt. More and more during the last hundred years, and especially in this century, Man has been trying to live entirely apart from God. You know all about it. The confidence and the optimism, the belief in science, the belief in knowledge and so on, that God was no longer necessary and we don't need him and so on. And we've been trying to make life and to live in this world apart from God. And you see the result. Now it's the very thing God was announcing in the Ten Commandments. And this is so perfectly obvious if you stop to think of it. You cannot regard man and his problems aright and correctly unless you regard men in his relationship to God. Of course, we are all very concerned about these human relationships. 
We said, there's another international conference. It's just broken down at Geneva. Now, what's the matter? Why can't the nations get on? Uh, why can't men get on? Why is, are there divisions and disputes between class and class, em employer and labor and so on and so forth? What's the meaning of all these personal clashes? These pr this is the great problem, we are told by the philosophers, is the problem of relationships. And, of course, we know that it is. Divorce, separation, infidelity, all these breakdowns all along the line of personal human relationships. And we are setting up commission after commission. We are bringing into, into being fresh organizations in order to try to deal with these relationships. And life is becoming amazingly complicated. They seem to be able to run industry in the past without personnel managers. You can't today. You've got to have people to look after people and another to look after this one. And so on the whole thing, it's becoming a gigantic scheme. We're all trying to put ourselves right with one another. What's the matter with us all? Ah, oh, the matter with us all is that we've altogether forgotten God. You don't understand men properly until you look at men in terms of God. Somebody said the proper study of mankind is men. Up to a point it's true, but there's another thing which is much more true. The proper study of mankind is God. For man has been made by God, and he's been made in such a way that he cannot function truly as a man unless he's in the right relationship with God. It's no use arguing about that. It's a fact. And history proves it to be a fact. When man tries to run himself and his world forgetting this, he always gets into trouble. The moment he comes back to this, all goes well with him. Now I say that this is just a fact of history. History proves invariably that when mankind does honor God, its human relationships solve themselves. You just work it out in terms of your secular history books. You will find invariably that every great religious revival is followed by general benefits in every realm and department of life. It's invariable. You get that after the Protestant Reformation. You had it in a most notable manner after the evangelical awakening of the 18th century. There were undoubtedly great advances made in the last century, the 19th century. Many uh, humanitarian acts of parliament were passed. Slavery was prohibited. Child labor was prohibited. Factory acts were passed and so on. There was a tremendous mitigation of injustices and an amelioration of wrongs and of troubles. Where did it come from? It came in the wake of the evangelical revival of the previous century. Once men are right with God, they get right with one another. Why? Well, they begin to see one another truly. And to see one another truly, we must see ourselves as under God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I look at myself and look at other men and women apart from God, what is it? Well, it's this. I set myself up as a God and they do the same. I want everything for myself, so do they. And the result is clashes inevitably. We both want the same thing, therefore we fight and quarrel. That's the whole essence of the trouble in the world tonight. 
My rights, a sovereign nation, a sovereign individual, and every other nation and every other individual sovereign, and it's a fight amongst gods. Why? Well, because we are not all of us on our knees worshipping the one and only true and living God. The second commandment said, Our blessed Lord, is this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes, but if you don't know what you are, how can you love your neighbor truly? And you see, you don't know what you are until you've seen yourself as a creature made by God and under God. And dependent upon God. And once you see yourself as that, well then you begin to see your fellow men and women in the same way. And you've got an entirely different attitude towards them. So that the order in which these commandments are put is tremendously important. The first table must come before the second. I say once more that history proves this absolutely. And the whole tragedy of the world in sin this evening is that men and women are trying to solve the problems of the world by dealing only with the second table. They don't say a word about the first table. They're trusting the politicians, they're trusting the philosophers, they're trusting the sociologists, they're convinced that money is the root of it, some say it's entirely economic, and so on and so forth. They're entirely in the second table. They don't say a word about God. God never enters into the calculation. And the problem persists and things go from bad to worse. There's no real respect for man himself. We're all self-centered and we forget all others. That's the difficulty. We've forgotten the first table. And we rush to the second. And what invariably happens is this. When men and women don't observe the first table, they very soon begin to neglect and ignore the second table also. You can't have the second without the first. And if you don't keep the first, you won't keep the second. And the chaos of the modern world is due to the failure to observe the first table of the law. Very well then, having said that, let us look at the first table. What does it tell us? Well, the first table tells us something about God himself. The first object which God had in view in giving the Ten Commandments and speaking to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai was to reveal himself. And it's the greatest need in the world tonight to know God. Our troubles, I say, all finally come back to this, that we are so ignorant of God and that our ideas of God are so utterly and absolutely false. So God revealed himself, and what? What did he reveal? He revealed himself as the all-powerful and the eternal God. Have we a sense of God? Do we realize that God made us and not ourselves? Do we realize that God said, let there be light and there was light? That God is the author of the whole cosmos, the whole entire universe, and brought it into being out of nothing? The self-existent, eternal, everlasting God existing from eternity to eternity, sufficient in and of himself, 
the all-powerful, almighty God. He revealed himself as that there were thunders, there were lightning, there was lightning, there was an earthquake. God just gave a glimpse of his everlasting Godhead and creatorship. If you and I in the whole world only realize that we are under the hand of such a God, it is a fearful thing, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. My dear friend, the trouble with every one of us is that we don't know God. If we but realize that as we walk and live for this brief little span which we are given in this life and in this world, ever under the eye of this almighty august being, oh, what a difference it would make to life. How carefully we'd all live. How tenderly would we all walk. How concerned we'd be and solicitous about others and their welfare with the eye of God upon us and it is upon us. And he revealed his holiness. He is a holy God. We can't conceive of it. He is of such a pure countenance that he cannot look upon sin. Our God is a consuming fire. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Can you think of that? Can you conceive it? No, no, our minds are too small, aren't they? They bubble at such a conception. And we are so sinful and so unworthy. We can't think of utter absolute holiness without the slightest suspicion of adulteration. We can't imagine it, but that is God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And that is the God that's looking down upon us. That is the God whom we'll have to meet. We are all in the presence of this being, this holy God that revealed himself here in his law as given to the children of Israel. Listen to the Apostle Paul saying something about him. He says that he dwelleth in the light which is unapproachable. God no man hath seen at any time, he says. He dwells in that eternal light. An Old Testament prophet asks, Who can dwell with the everlasting burning? You go through your Bible and read the visions which certain men like Isaiah had of God in his holiness and in his glory, and you'll find that every one of them fell down. They were alarmed and terrified. Woe is me, says Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips. Who can stand in his presence? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in his holy presence? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. For God is absolutely holy. Everlasting purity and righteousness and justice. He revealed that here. 
And he likewise revealed that he is the judge eternal, visiting, he tells us here, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the third and fourth generation of them that hate him, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love him and keep his commandments. My dear friends, if we only realize this, the message of Christianity doesn't start with the second tables. It isn't simply to tell you how can you can be happy and get over this or that particular problem. No, no. The first message of the scripture is this, that we are all under God. And that is God. You can't escape him. You can't get away from him. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. The psalmist argues it out in the 139th Psalm. If I go into heaven, he's there. If I descend into hell, lo, thou art there. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. I can't escape. You can't get out of his universe. He's above it and beyond it. He made it all out of nothing. God! Have you a sense of God, I ask? Do you realize that he is looking upon you at this very moment? That you can never be out of his presence? He revealed it. But let me hear none. He tells us what he demands of us. And he tells us, first of all, what he demands of us as regards himself. And it follows of necessity from what he has said about himself. Here are the points. I'm not working them out. I'm simply giving you the list. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. He is the only God. And we must not recognize any other God. We mustn't regard ourselves as gods. We mustn't regard husband, wife, children as gods. We mustn't regard our country as something to be worshipped. And the world is full of these strange gods today. We are worshipping other gods. We put the Lord God Almighty on one side and we put these other things in the first place and we bow down and worship. But we mustn't. He tells us, Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Neither must we make any graven image. Why mustn't we make images? I'll tell you. We mustn't make images because all of them detract from the glory of God. God is spirit. You can't give him form. No man hath seen God at any time. You haven't seen his shape, said the Lord Jesus Christ to the Jews. And to attempt to reduce God to an image, something that man makes, is to detract from his everlasting glory. Therefore, away with images. Whether they're even meant to be images of God or not, they're not to be tolerated. No graven images. And then you notice we're not to take his name in vain. And the world is taking his name in vain. You hear the comedians ending their program saying, God bless him. It's taking the name of God in vain. My God, says a man, this has happened to me. And the poor man doesn't realize what he's saying. He's taking the name of this eternal God in vain. And God has prohibited that, and God says that certain consequences will follow doing that. What else? We are not to take his day in vain either. For God has appointed that one day in seven should be his day. Why? Oh, not just to make us live a mechanical life, but for this reason. God knows us. And God knows how forgetful we are of him. 
We are busy with our professions and our business and our work and our affairs and our pleasures. And we say, you know, at night I'm too tired to read the Bible. I'm too tired to pray. And then in the morning we haven't got time. God says, one day in seven, stop everything. Give it to me. Remind yourselves of me. Come to me. Come and worship me. Think about me. Praise me. Pray to me. Consider me. One day in seven, that's all he asks. And man doesn't give it him. Though he now only works five days a week in the main, he doesn't give this day to God. He hasn't got time for it. He's thus detracting from the glory of God and refusing to worship God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. It isn't the particular day that matters. It is that one day in seven is given to God and given entirely to God. Are you doing it, my friend? It isn't a question of Sabbatarianism. That's not a thing I'm interested in. It's not a bit of legalism. It's just this, that we ought to thank God that we have one day where we can give it entirely to him. But alas, I find even many Christian people write their family letters on Sunday. You shouldn't do it, my friends. It's sin. It's taking a part of God's day for your family. The whole day must be given to God. And there are those who only come to morning worship and are never seen in the evening. They spend their time at home reading or something else. It's not giving it all to God. He wants the whole day. He only asks for one in seven that we may meditate upon him and upon our relationship to him and his glory and what he's done for us. There is the law with regard to our relationship to God. And then in the second table he tells us about our relationship to one another. And you see it all follows inevitably from the first. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Why? Because fatherhood and motherhood are reflections of God and our relationship to him. It's God who brought fatherhood and motherhood into being, not men. It's God who's ordained the family. And all these things are reflections of our ultimate relationship to him. So honor your father and your mother because God is the father of fatherhood. He is the ultimate father of all, father of spirits. So we must honor our father and mother. And then we go on, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit murder. In other words, you must not take the law into your own hands. Why must you not murder another man? Well, he's been made in the image of God. And you are doing something to the image of God when you take the law into your own hands and murder another. Thou shalt not kill, thou must recognize his individuality and entity as it's given to him by God. And in the same way thou shalt not commit adultery. God ordained that men and women should come together. He appointed a helpmeet for the first men. And he said the twain shall be one flesh. They become one. And you must not break into that. For you're violating something that God has ordained. And again you're defacing the image. So you must not commit adultery. Not on human grounds, but on divine grounds. Because man is under God and belongs to God. What else? 
Thou shalt not steal again for the same reason. You see, every one of these is because of men's relationship to God. It isn't simply because you break a law and because it belongs to the other men. No, no. You're taking something from his identity, his individuality, what God has made him. So you must not steal. And in the same way, you must not bear false witness against your neighbor. In all these actions, you see, we are detracting from the greatness of men made in the image of God. And that is why God prohibits it. And then you come to the last one, which is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor. You see, you recognize each one as an entity under God, and you respect him for that reason. You see him as a creature of God. So God has told us what we've got to do, both as regards himself and as regards our fellow men and women. He's taught us that here. But you know, God gave all this in order to teach us something else, which is this that we can never carry all this out. The children of Israel in their folly believed that they could carry it out. When Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him, the people all answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. But they didn't. And they didn't because men in sin couldn't. The law, says the Lord Jesus Christ, is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. Have you done it? This we will do, they say, but they can't. And, and the Apostle Paul in the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans in the 3rd verse puts it like this once and forever. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law is perfect, yes, but show me the men who can keep it. God gave the law to these people. Why? In order to convince them that their arrogance and their self-confidence was entirely misplaced. They cannot keep it. They said they could. Very well, says God, this is what I want you to do. If you can keep this, you'll satisfy me. And they couldn't and they failed. But let us remember that God tells us that failure to do all this is sin. And that he hates sin and that he will punish sin. And that if we fail in any one point of this law, we have failed in the whole law. Because every single one of them, as we've seen, is directly related to God. Very well then, my friends, the position that God has revealed about us to ourselves is this. That the important question to ask at this moment is, not have I been guilty of this, that, or the other. We start with the first table. Am I living entirely to the glory of God? Have I no other God besides him? Do I never take his name in vain? Am I not taking his day in vain? Am I honoring all his laws in my relationships to others because he is God? Have I kept it? with all my being. And if I haven't, 
I am a sinner. I am guilty of terrible sin. You see, there are people who say, you know, they say, I can't honestly say that I feel I'm a sinner. You know what they mean by that? They say they've never got drunk, they've not been guilty of adultery. And they say, you know, I really don't feel I'm a sinner. Why? Because they've never started with the first table. They've never asked the question, what is my relationship to God? Are you living entirely to the glory of God? If not, you're a terrible sinner. Do you see any need of God in your life? Is God in the center of your life and of your heart? If he isn't, you're insulting him in the most abominable manner. You know perfectly well what would happen to you if you turned your back on the queen in Buckingham Palace. When you're presented to the queen, you, when you leave her, you don't turn your back and walk away. You have to walk back like this. And yet what are we all doing with God? We deliberately turn our backs upon him with oaths and cursing. Perhaps not with oaths and cursing, but with extreme politeness. We just ignore him altogether. And we put ourselves before him. We put our children before him. We put our money, our possession, all these other things. All the insult to this holy eternal God. That's sin. And God must punish it. And God will punish it. And he's revealed it in his Ten Commandments. He gave the law, says the apostle, in order to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. He gave it to show men that they could never, by their own efforts and striving, reach him and satisfy him and please him. He has shown them that they're all in sin and all under wrath. So that finally, you see, he gave the law for this reason. He gave it in the words of the Apostle Paul in order that it might become our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What does that mean? It just means this. He gave the law in order to convince everybody that without Christ they're absolutely lost and hopeless and doomed. How? Well, like this. God's demands must be satisfied. God's law must be fulfilled. God doesn't give a law just to play with us. When God gave his law, he said this must be kept. And no man has ever kept it. No man, as I say, ever can keep it. And yet we must keep it. We cannot see God and heaven unless this law is honored and kept. We cannot do so. Have you tried? Well, if you haven't tried, and I'll assure you, you'll be further away at the end of this week than you were now. But God's law must be kept. It must be honored. It must be fulfilled. We cannot. Well, are we therefore irretrievably doomed? No, no. God has sent his only son from heaven to earth. He took on the likeness of human flesh. And as a man, he kept it absolutely. First and second tables. Not a jot, not a tittle failed. He kept it perfectly. And he did it for us. The law makes me see my need of him. 
Not only that, because we have failed to keep this law, we have sinned against God and we need forgiveness. What can I do about this? How can God forgive my sin? He's a just and a holy and a righteous God. He doesn't change and he hates sin. How can he forgive me then in my sin and still remain just? That's a question the law raises. And the answer is still in the same person and in the same place. He hath set him forth, says the Apostle Paul in the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans, as the propitiation for our sins, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Do you realize what that means? It means this. God being God must punish sin. And the punishment of sin is death and separation from God, as we saw in the third of Genesis. Very well, God must do that. And yet, well, how can he do that and yet I be saved and dwell with God? Here's the answer. God has taken our sins and put them on his own son. The son submitted himself willingly, voluntarily, passively, and allowed the sins to be placed upon him. And God has dealt with them and has punished them there. My sins were punished in Christ. And God therefore can justly forgive me. He's just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. The Ten Commandments tell us that that was the only way in which even God can forgive sin. God can't say, I'll forget that, I'll pretend I haven't seen it, God is just. He can't speak like that and he doesn't. God must be just, God must keep his character, God must punish sin, God has punished sin. This law drives me to Christ. I have forgiveness in him and in him alone. But having had the forgiveness and having seen the love of God, I now want to please God and live to the glory of God. How can I with my fallen nature? I, again, I'm driven to Christ. He gives me a new nature. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Still in Christ, you see. It is all in Christ. His righteousness is given to me in him I have forgiveness, in him I have new life, in him I have power and strength and all I need. And in him I begin to look at everybody else in a new way. The world was divided into Jews and Gentiles until Christ came and died upon the cross. And the Jew regarded the Gentile as a dog outside the pale. And the Gentile with his Greek philosophy and learning and his Roman law despised the Jew. And they hated one another. And there was a great middle wall of partition between them. But when they both saw themselves as helpless, hopeless sinners in the presence of a holy God and realized their equal helplessness and hopelessness, and saw that there was only one Savior and one salvation for them both, 
namely Christ, who died for them. They both came to him together. They held hands and they joined in the same hymn of praise. And the middle wall of partition had gone. Christ makes one new man. He abolishes the enmity. He breaks down the middle wall of partition because by one spirit, by the same one spirit, we have access to the same Father, by the same Christ. Oh, my dear friend, had you realized the meaning and the message of the Ten Commandments? That's the message. For the moment, forget everything but this. God and yourself. God and you. And that will remain ever always. You will be you. And God will be God. And for eternity or I, we're going to enjoy his glorious presence and be blessed by him. Or you're going to spend your eternity outside him in misery. And there's only one way to the blessing. It is to believe his message concerning his only son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save that which was lost, to give his life a ransom for many. Has the law of God brought you to Christ? If it hasn't, nothing else will and until you see its meaning and its message, you remain in your sins and under the wrath of God. Oh, that the law tonight has become your schoolmaster to bring you to Christ and through him to God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.